is hungry? Don't you know your sister's lonely? Don't you know there's babies crying? Don't you know your brother's dying? Greetings. I'm Dr. Anthony Smith of Alashe Center for Enrichment, and welcome to Black Folks Do Therapy, where we endeavor to challenge you to think critically about your mental health and overall wellness. Our goal is to inspire you to align your actions and values so that you might live your life fully 86,400 seconds every single day. We do this in part by asking questions and raising issues that you may not have previously considered. Ultimately, we encourage you to do those things that help you to live your best life consistently, always working towards balance. Greetings, everybody, and thank you for joining us for this next episode in Black Folks Do Therapy. We thank you for tuning in and hearing what we have to say about mental health in our community. Today, we are joined by Dr. Jamila Codrington of Asili Services Incorporated. That's out of Brooklyn, New York City. And she's going to join us and talk about her practice and how she does therapy. And we're going to speak a little bit about the current uh, issues we're having with COVID-19 and jump into a little bit about how she um, does what she does in a African-centered way. So we're going to have a good time having this discussion uh, over the phone. We weren't able to make the in-person meeting like we normally do due to the travel restrictions, but we'll get up there sometime and see her in person. How are you doing today, Dr. Codrington? I am well. I am well, Brother Anthony. Thank you. It is been a long time coming and it's it's an honor to be able to speak with you and and share some thoughts glad to have you glad to have you so we're going to jump in and have you just give us a little bit about your background i would like to know how you got into this field of psychology and doing what you do and um, progressing to the place where you are now sure so It's interesting because when I tell this story, um, it almost seems unreal looking back at it uh, because I had a fairly narrow path. Um, I I think it was my senior year in high school. I I took an AP psychology course, and I think I just took it because the description sounded interesting, and it was actually one of the few classes that were taught by... Uh, an African-American female in my high school. So that was already, you know, she was a rare unicorn. And I said, whatever she's teaching, I'm taking. Mm -hmm. And um, I found myself in this course and absolutely fell in love uh, with the field of psychology. And uh, at one point, we were charged to do a essay. And we had to, uh, I think, maybe go outside in our community and do some observations and link it back to the field of psychology. Mm. And, you know, I'm born and raised in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. And at the time, you know, I I went outside and found no traces of, of anything connected to mental health in my, in my neighborhood. Wow. And I found that I, I, there was no way of connecting Um, some of the things that we talked about uh, to my community because 
you know, there were no mental health clinics that were visible. Um, I didn't know of any psychologists or mental health professionals um, of color, you know, and I had no role models. And in that moment, I remember writing about that in my essay. You know, I saw a lot more churches and and liquor stores and, um, you know, lotto spots. And, you know, I said, something is missing. And at some point, um, I had decided I wanted to bring psychology back to my community, you know. And at the time, I think I was probably 17. And from that point forward, you know, it was a very straight and narrow path. I, I went to um, Syracuse and uh, knew immediately that I wanted to major in psychology, and I did so. And once I finished that degree, I also um, majored in African-American studies. And so mm. that was probably the very beginning of my formal training of, of merging um, sort of African um, concepts and African history to the field of psychology. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, I went right on to grad school at University of Maryland at College Park. And I wanted to work with uh, someone who um, was also focused on um, applying psychological principles to people of African descent. And I mm -hmm. fell in love with uh, racial identity theory. Okay. And so I decided, you know, I, I want to work with Dr. Janet E. Helms. Right, and right. I used, uh, yeah, I used mm -hmm. her uh, racial identity theory in my uh, thesis. You know, I was an honor student in in um, my undergraduate program, and we had to do a, a thesis. So I, I focused on racial identity and decided, you know, I, I really want to take this to the next level. And so I didn't at the time really know the differences between counseling psychology and clinical psychology, but she was a counseling psychologist and she was teaching, you know, at University of Maryland College Park. And it happened to be the number one um, program in the country for counseling psychology at the time. So it just made sense. So I said, let me apply here. And, um, and I was accepted. And so, you know, that was the beginning of, of my doctoral training and, uh, things kind of fell in place. Um, wow. From that point forward. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the things you, the things you didn't know. Um, so, let me ask you some questions here. Uh, racial identity model. We weren't going to talk about that, but since you brought it up, I think it would be good to talk about it briefly. Can you just describe what that is for our listeners? Sure. So, um, I mean, there's a lot of theories of racial identity and, uh, you know, we talk about this idea that just because you have melanated skin, doesn't mean you have the same level of consciousness mm -hmm. around what it means to be a person of African descent. Mm -hmm. And so uh, from, you know, Robert Cross uh, to Dr. Janet e. Helms, um, there's a number of theorists out there. Uh, but uh, Dr. Helms' model, she has um, not only black racial identity theory, but white racial identity theory. And uh, early on, she had a V-reg, which is um, various racial ethnic group um, to describe what goes on for other um, ethnic groups outside of those two dominant socio-racial groups. 
And um, the thought was to understand how people related to um, their experience as being a, um, a person that was categorized as, as black, you know, and she described these as socially constructed racial groups. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously they're not, um, you know, it has nothing to do with our actual um, ethnicity, whether you're, um, you know, Trinidadian or from South Carolina or, you know, from uh, Tanzania, the experience of being black. Right. And so, you know, people have different ideas about um, the pride that they have uh, in respect to that, the degree to which they think that um, their racial group impacts their understanding of themselves and Mm -hmm. their life experiences. And the idea is that you kind of go from uh, least sophisticated stages where you're looking to conform Mm-hmm. With um, the dominant group, you know, it's sort of like the whole colorblind mentality where race doesn't matter. Um, and you actually have, you know, internalized, um, you know, white um, dominant cultural group uh, thinking. Right? So, um, so, so, so let me, mm-hmm. so you identify more with white culture and less with your own culture in the earlier state. So this is a model that build the stages build on each other. Is that the correct way to look right, at it? Right. Right. Oh, and, and even in the earlier stages, you have this colorblind mentality. So not even recognizing that race matters. So you, you don't know, see color. You, you just, it's like, Oh, we're, we're just, people are people. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, um, unlike the, you know, the understanding that, you know, there are, social, economical, and and political forces that are impacting us. And we live in a society that is fueled by racism, you know, and and race is the dominant organizing principle, Mm -hmm. Um, you know. And so, you know, these are the different stages. And then it it also impacts, you know, how we relate to one another. And Mm -hmm. so there are ways that you can use racial identity theory uh, to predict therapy outcomes you know when you look at matching this is some of the work that we used to do Mm -hmm. where we would um you know there's actually scales um where you rate your level of agreement with certain attitudes Mm -hmm. and based on that those attitudes you you can rate uh you can rank yourself or you would be evaluated and assessed to put it put yourself in a certain category racial identity category and then um there are different outcomes, you know, if you have someone who, you know, is, let's say, a, a, a therapist of color, uh, say the African-American psychologist who is at one of the earlier stages um, of racial identity uh, where they don't necessarily have a way of placing um, the individuals presenting problem inside of a, a racial lens or racial framework and that particular client is at a higher stage uh, status, racial identity status, um, you can have a poor outcome. So mm. it's not about, you know, color matching in terms of looking at how effective uh, therapeutic work and the healing work is. 
is really about looking at the consciousness behind the individual. Mm-hmm. And you really want to be able to understand that racial identity has a more um, significant impact, you know, on therapy outcomes than racial category itself. Okay. So going back to those to those levels, you start, is it, um, how many different levels are there? Oh, there's been a lot of iterations of the model. Mm-hmm. Um, when it started out, I think there were five. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like conformity, dissonance, um, I think the appreciating resistance and immersion, you know, or introspection and integrative awareness. It, and then she evolved it over time. And actually, I've been a bit separated from the theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know where she is now, but um, it started out, I think, about five or six stages. Okay. And so, mm-hmm. but ultimately, the thing is, people would progress from a stage where race is not something that's in their forefront to something where they're very much about their identity and they're fighting for the cause, that kind of thing. Um, right? Right, right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, ultimately where you want to get to is a place where um, you're not conforming to the dominant culture. You're not identifying as white. You're not colorblind. Um, but you have an ability to um, to recognize that uh, you're, you're a racial being and you're, you're, um, you're black uh, racial category is something that you receive in a in a affirming way, you mm-hmm. know, in a positive way, and you're also able to um, not just be focused on being anti-white, right? That that's that's right. another level of it, right. which is not yet necessarily at the top, you know, according to the model, right. um, where you're just kind of looking at things in this, um, you know, kind of dichotomy where anything you know, anything black is better and anything white is, is, is bad, you know, but you, you're able to kind of, um, move through the world using your own, you know, moral codes and values and exploring, you know, things on a case by case scenario, but you have this positive association with yourself as a racial being Mm -hmm. and you can define things on your own terms. Yeah. I remember thinking about my, myself as it, as it relates to moving through those models, going from, you know, growing up in Miami and very uh, diverse environment, community there. And so didn't really have to deal with a lot of um, overt racism um, and was just kind of sheltered from that because my environment was, you know, it wasn't one where I was getting that a lot. And so I had this kind of naive attitude of, oh, life is life. Everybody's good. Even though I had a sense that there was some racism there, I understood the concept, but I didn't really get it. And then I go from Miami to South Bend, Indiana um, for college, University of Notre Dame, where there's 3% black people. So (laughs) it hit really hard where the racism was overt in our face all the time. And it was like, wow, it was a wake up call. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to a space of consciousness where I began to learn about 
um, African heritage, African history, um, what it meant to be uh, uh, a fighter for civil rights and, and all that. And I moved to a phase of um, uh, pro-black, anti-white, right? right. <laughs> and then <laughs> and fight the power. That was public enemy. We mm-hmm. we actually had a sit-in. We um, we took over the administration bill. I mean, it was really fight the power. And then um, after moving into graduate school and and doing my program, moving to a phase of, you know, I can be pro-black and about institution building for myself, but I don't have to be other anything else. They can do whatever they want to do. That's their Notre Dame. They were never going to give it to us, um, but I'm going to go build my own and make it even Mm -hmm. better. And Mm -hmm. so I moved into that you know, that that final phase, if you will. And I think that's a way, a practical way to think about how people move through various stages and not that one is right or wrong, um, but that we are constantly evolving and transforming in life. And so I think it's important to point that out because now, and we'll get back to as as you work with different clients who are in various stages, um, do you find it to be a challenge to help them understand? You talked a little bit about even matching where a client is versus where the clinician is. Um, can you can you tie that all together and speak a little bit about your work in in, in dealing with people and how that might uh, play out? Sure. Well, you know, the interesting thing is that the field of the the field of psychology and the helping profession in general, you know, has this fundamental uh, value right, or philosophy around um, accepting people where they are and meeting people where they're at. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, that's a part of how I work in that, you know, um, I've worked with children who come in and who have had um, very early uh, racial experiences, you know, even in elementary school where um, they've been targeted because they're, um, you know, a numerical minority, you know, as a student of color, or they've actually been um, kind of uh, teased and ostracized because they have kinky hair um, and they want that that golden slinky hair or silky hair. You know, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of different ways that I I hear young um, (laughs) African-American girls talk about it. Right. Um, You know, and... And in that way, my, my work becomes instantaneously um, biased, you know, and it becomes a bit more um, political where I'm not working in that moment to meet that child where they're at. Um, I'm actually working from a very African-centered perspective where I want to get them up the ladder. You know, I want to get them to the place where they can recognize that um, they're embracing white standards of beauty. You know, even as a five-year-old, there's ways to understand that you come from um, kings and queens that have kinky hair and that, you know, are um, a, a, a cultural group to be extremely proud of, you know, and that there's a lot of things that your hair can do, um, that golden, 
you know, silky hair cannot do, um, as opposed to just helping them to manage the stress of being ostracized and Mm -hmm. to, you know, find ways of coping with the anxiety or working with the parent to consult with the school. So in that way, the work is not neutral. You know, the work is not for me just Mm -hmm. about meeting clients where they're at. I'm always, um, because of my own personal bias when working with uh, people of African descent, I want to support them in getting to a place where they have an expression of a positive racial identity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I haven't heard the gold and silky before. That's new. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there, there's, there's so many. There's so many. Um, you know, because they may not have a language. You know, mm-hmm. they may not know exactly how to categorize it. They certainly don't necessarily know um kinky you know or that the the hair has um you know um is is perfectly spiraled you know but a lot of times they um they want um you know straight hair silky hair golden hair which is you know like the blonde straight hair um and these are again things that are reinforced by a lot of the um the media you know the dolls uh, the comparisons, the self-other comparisons mm-hmm. uh, for children in terms of who they see around them in their class. Uh, but the, the, the ideology is there, and that ideology is one that has to be dismantled, which is that, you know, your natural indigenous self is not enough. Mm-hmm. So, it's, bi- so you're, it's biased, but it's also educational, what you're doing. You're teaching as well as helping from a mental health perspective. Wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And I, I'd probably also say that even for people that think they're working with a stance of neutrality, um, they're not. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really just about how much do we engage in deep reflection and how much do we name our biases that are there? Because there's really no such thing as being, you know, 100% neutral. Mm-hmm. Because we're trained, you know, with a lot of um, Western models right. um, and, and Eurocentric models. So even what we think of as neutral is already biased. It's just like, a, you know, a hidden um, caveat that it's white, it's Western. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But it definitely is not universal. Right, right. Why do you think it's important um, for you to be able to come from a perspective that you do, an African-centered perspective that centers um the the person that you're working with rather than looking at it from a dominant society point of view Mm -hmm. well i think that the first thing that comes to mind is that i have a strong um belief that our strength as a people lies in our heritage and when we can begin to reclaim um, many of our traditional African values, our customs, our ways of being, we're able to not only be resilient Mm -hmm. and operate in our highest frequency, but we're also able to connect with spirit, which allows us to solve our own problems. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's the part that is the ultimate goal of any therapeutic process. You know, right. it's not to continuously have, you know, a therapist as a adjunct to your 
your lifestyle. I mean, some people do, you know, um, in terms of having uh, a preventive model, mm-hmm. you know, of care. But but ideally, the goal is for people to be able to use um, their own internal resources, um, their ancestral wisdom, uh, their um, culturally aligned coping strategies, the, the resources that exist in their um their kinship circles and 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 and, and their extended um, network to be able to uh, solve their problems and and align with their divine purpose, mm-hmm. you know. And I believe that each person um, has a purpose that is is um, not necessarily the goal of what we're supposed to figure out in therapy. Right. But that the skills that you learn along the way will will take you on that journey. Mm-hmm. And in order to connect with those skills, um, I believe we have to connect to our roots, you know, and for, for people of African descent, um, that, that's African tradition. Absolutely. You know? And um, we've unfortunately, you know, had over 500 years of um, of that tradition being systematically suppressed and mm-hmm. annihilated. Mm-hmm. So the goal is to try to reclaim it and also figure out how does it fit in a contemporary context. Absolutely. Do you find people resistant to that at times? As in, as in I don't want to deal with all that African stuff. I'm not, you know, I'm not African descendant. And uh, do you find resistance in that way? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because resistance looks a lot of, um, look. It, it shows its face in a lot of ways. Sure. And I, I have seen it more so like, um, uh, well, in its most benign way, I would say ignorance. Uh-huh. So um, a good example would be I have um, quite a number of people that I have in my practice where um, they've come to me because of traumatic grief, you know, significant losses of um, mainly parents, you know, parents and and spouses um, and children. And I can recall one woman that I was working with um, who was of Caribbean um, background, uh, born in the islands. And, you know, she, I was asking her, you know, what does she consider a, a healthy grieving process? Mm-hmm. You know, how, how do we define that so that we can come up with some mutually agreed upon goals for your, your healing work? You know, and she basically talked about, you know, I, I don't want to feel this despair anymore. I don't want to feel like I can't function uh, without having my father, you know, in my life. Mm. And I began to ask her, what makes her think that she doesn't have her father in her life? You know, and that was the the first entry point into discussing spirit. Right. You know, and and the extent to which we are spirits living out a human experience. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, not human beings that when we have our earthly transition, you know, we're we're erased (laughs) from people's lives. Mm -hmm. But this was this was her fundamental belief Mm -hmm. you know and I asked her you know if she ever thought about the possibility of 
um, communicating with her father as an ancestor. Right. You know, mm-hmm. as a as a pathway mm-hmm. to creating, you know, um, a, a pathway for her healing, you know, mm-hmm. with this traumatic grief. You know, and this is where, you know, again, it wasn't like she was adamant that she was not going to do it, but it was sort of like, what does that, how, how do you do that? Right. What does you that know? look like? What does that even mean? Mm-hmm. I, I have no semblance of an understanding of how to relate to anything that I can't see and touch and feel, mm-hmm. you know, so this became the journey of exploring with her, you know, how do you um, use spirit inside of the process of um, kind of um, post-traumatic growth when it comes to traumatic grief? Yes. And how do you how do you allow yourself to communicate with ancestors when it's never been taught, you know, because for a lot of people coming out of, um, you know, strict um, Christian or Catholic backgrounds, sometimes, you know, that is considered considered like devil's worship. You know, when you start talking about communicating with anybody other than um, Christ or the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yes, I have seen it. Um, but sometimes it really is a matter of of like not really knowing as opposed to an active resistance. You know, it's that's um, it's amazing that you brought this up. It is. Uh, I never know what, what what's going to come up in these conversations, but <laughs> I think this concept of spirit is a fundamental concept when we're talking about working with African-American clients. Spirit and the energy of God is something that wants to be discussed and we're trained to kind of leave that over there i've Mm -hmm. noticed that a lot of times people have a reluctance to bring it up they might bring it up in roundabout ways and i always give permission for them to go ahead and have that dialogue it's like oh yeah and it doesn't matter what tradition it is i don't really care about that whatever it is that's working for you we can talk about that because that's that's what you base the way you live your life on. Mm-hmm. And so tapping into and touching spirit um, and giving people permission to merge the two together, because the other challenge is um, sometimes people are set, are taught, just let God work your problems out. Don't mm-hmm. come to therapy. Right. So that's the other end of that. And, mm-hmm. and as opposed to recognizing that it could be a merging of the two. Right. 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 Yeah. So yeah, I mean, how many times have we heard, you know, either um, you're going to worry or you're going to pray. Right. You know, as if, as right. if <laughs> you know, these two things are mutually exclusive. Right. And you're, you're you know, um, a bad Christian if you have worry, if you have fear, if you have anxiety, because that means that you're not praying enough or you don't have enough conviction or faith, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so, yes, th- that whole myth of... Um, you know, having to have this be either or, you know, is definitely alive and well. And I agree with this idea of of having people define it in whatever way that they see fit, you know. And a lot of times I think that the initial phase is understanding that spirit is also within you. Mm -hmm. So even if they don't necessarily go the extent of, you know, understanding the, you know, 
the Orishas as spirits or, you know, ancestors as spirits or, um, you know, anything in that uh, dimension, but to understand that you have an inner spirit and there are certain things that are part of your makeup, you know, it's, it's mind, body, and spirit. And sometimes our own intuition is spirit. Absolutely. And and mm-hmm. how do we connect to that seat of our soul so that we can begin to have and tap into another way of knowing mm-hmm. besides our rational thoughts and our feelings? And you it's know? yeah, and it's stuff that people are already doing anyway. They just call it something different. Right. Mm-hmm. So I don't, you probably have had many people that have talked to you about dreams. Right. Yes, definitely. I, I get that a lot. It's like mm-hmm. that spirit talking to you is giving you a message. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's a safe place. But it's the same thing. Indeed. You know, mm-hmm. or even in, you know, in our colloquial terms, you know, I, I just I had a vibe. Right. A vibe. Uh-huh. Well, what, what is a vibe? You know, <laughs> right. vibe is short for vibration. Exactly. You know, and, and, and anything that is vibrating is on a energetic level that you cannot see or touch, mm-hmm. you know? And so that, that is spirit, you know, that vibrational energy is, is spirit. So when you get a vibe, you know, that you didn't get a good vibe from a person or you went into a, a party and, and it was a bad vibe and you stepped out, you know, that, that is spirit, your higher self, your ori, you know, talking to you saying, this is um, your other way of knowing, mm-hmm. speaking to you in this moment, and it's real. You know, exactly. it's real, and it's it's different from other ways that I think um, we've been taught. Uh, but it is certainly there for us to access. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. I think, and this these are things that you're not gonna get with your um, Western trained psychologists right right uh, the mainstream psychologists this is not mm-hmm. it, that's why it's important to have someone who is culturally centered coming from an african-centered perspective who can tap into the essence of who we are and work with you to help you progress to your optimal space of being um, that's what's vitally important here and i'm glad you're bringing these things out um, what do you typically find yourself working with in your practice? What types of things? Well, my practice has a has a broad reach. Uh, so I, I started out actually um, specializing in children, adolescents, and families uh, for about uh, sixteen years, and then in um, twenty fifteen. I started my private practice, uh, which then allowed me to extend to working with um, adults and couples uh, and and families that are not necessarily traditional. So um, they may not necessarily be there for couples work or, um, you know, marital therapy, but I do a lot of co-parenting work. Mm. So for, for mm. Um, individuals that have... Um, you know, a lot of tension in the in the relationship between um, two parents or caregivers. Uh, being able to provide a space that we can keep the the best interests of that young person 
at the forefront and figure out ways to um, figure out ways to um, engage in a healing of that relationship to the extent that it serves the child. I mean, it's, it's, it's not necessarily couples work, um, but sometimes there are um, old patterns of, of communication or ways of being, you know, distrust or, um, you know, resentment that bleeds its way into decisions that get made for the child around visitation or um, just, um, you know, being able to make mutual decisions. So I do a lot of that um, work when it comes to family work. But, you know, above all, uh, in my work with children and adolescents, um, of course, a lot of um, problems with emotional regulation um, Mm -hmm. in the classroom, um, a lot of issues uh, around anxiety, uh, at least on the surface, you know, but I do have a number of cases where... um, the distinction between anxiety and even um, what we would call psychopathology um, or psychosis and and spirituality um, has to be discerned. And that's the work that I've also um, taken on with a lot of those cases because what you see is not always what you get. Um, So there's a lot of that uh, depression, um, a lot of trauma, um, a lot of trauma, sexual trauma, early childhood trauma, um, and not just with uh, women and girls, but also um, with um, um, a lot of men. I'm starting to see a lot of men come forward uh, in terms of, of um, those kinds of help-seeking behaviors. Mm-hmm. So it really does run the gamut. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. Um, and, it's, and it's good, you know... I, I, because there are, numerically speaking, so few of us, um, a lot of us end up feeling filling a lot of roles, and it, it it forces us to raise our levels to be able to accommodate that. Uh, and I mm-hmm. I um, purposely geared my training to be able to serve as many possible things as I as I could. Um, mm-hmm. And and you know and I think part of it is just uh, being a healer. Um, being somebody that is truly invested in doing this work in the way that we do it, um, part of it is a natural gift, right? In terms mm-hmm. of being able to to do this work, and that's certainly what I'm hearing um, from you and, and many of the folks that I'm talking with about this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'd like you to give give a couple of um, one thing that stood out was you, when you were talking about the parenting, the co-parenting for folks who. Um, are no longer together. I think that is a critical issue in our community. And we see that a lot, that the child is being used as a pawn and the parents aren't able to let go of old hurts and um, issues they had with each other that have nothing to do with the the benefit and the, and the well-being of their child. Mm-hmm. Um, can you give a couple of uh, techniques or, that you use to help people work through those issues? Or, or some practical sure. examples of how you've worked mm-hmm. through it, maybe? Mm-hmm. 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 Well, the first thing is really around trying to identify what it, what is an intention. I start with this idea of um, 
let an intention honor this work. And so an intention is something that keeps bringing us back to a, a focal point that can sometimes be stronger than, you know, our reactions in the moment or our attitudes or existent, um, you know, preconceived notions about another person. And when it starts to get really sticky, um, as these co-parenting sessions tend, tend to get, you know, I need to be able to have, you know, this um, guiding intention that I can, I can bring back up to the forefront and say, let's take a moment to get grounded again in our intention. So an intention is something that might um, sound something like this. Um, and I work to cultivate it with each parent. So it may be, um, you know, that our child has um, a safe, happy childhood with an ability to feel love at every turn. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, that we have an ability to um, create decisions for our child that are in the in the best interest of our child's health um and their long-term goals you know so it's something that has nothing to do with themselves as a person nothing to do with their past history you know as partners but something that is is affirming it's positive it is um future oriented and it brings us back to why we're doing this work. Okay. Um, and so that's a technique that for me, I end up using because when people start talking about, well, you know, in the past, you know, when we started uh, dating and, you know, you ended up sleeping with this other woman, <laughs> you know, you lost all rights right. to see your child because I don't know who you're going to be around anymore. Right, right. You know, I've seen the kind of women that you've had. And then you you can fall down the rabbit hole because now you're speaking about, um, you know, um, you know, infidelity issues, loss of trust. Um, Those are those are things that are hard to repair and restore um, with just doing, you know, co-parenting sessions. Mm -hmm. That that is a deeper level of therapeutic work. And so when you bring yourself back to the intention, then you get to say, okay, if this is our intention to create, um, you know, an abundant life for a child that, you know, they experience love at every turn, um, despite the past, what can we do in this moment so that the child can experience their visits with the father as loving? Mm -hmm. Okay. So now we have an opportunity to say, well, what are the requirements um, that would allow this young person to feel love? Well, they have to be able to know that, um, you know, mommy and daddy are getting along because otherwise, you know, the, the tension is going to trickle its way down into this, this child's, you know, experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so we might talk about techniques to ensure that the child is not exposed 
to any arguments, you know, and that they're very clear that they have um, a private space to hash out, you know, issues around visitation or, um, you know, child support issues, the things that kind of bring a lot of heat um, to, to the conversation. So that, again, we're clear that the, the past does have an impact on your current relationship. But if we keep looking behind us, you know, in the rear, rear, rear view mirror, we miss an opportunity to align ourselves with the intention for the child's future. Mm-hmm. And so we, we really look at um, being in the moment and, and creating action steps that are aligned with that intention. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's that's great. And people are responding to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it's it's interesting because, um, you know, oftentimes people think of therapy with the um, inside of a family uh, modality as something where you, you want to work on a relationship or you want to heal that relationship. But for a lot of our families that have been, um, you know, disrupted by... Um, you know, various issues, whether it's domestic violence or, um, you know, untreated substance abuse or, you know, um, people who are kind of um, dealing with their own mental health issues and it gets in the way. Um, we have to we have to recognize that part of our work is also um, looking at these fragmented families and not not looking to repair necessarily those relationships, but um, have it be workable, yeah. have it be workable so that um, the child, as you said, does not become a pawn in the game. Right. And that's a different level of, of therapeutic work. And I think I'm finding um, that as word gets out that I'm doing this kind of work, it, it's almost like mediation mm-hmm. yes. um, in many ways. Yes. Um, and there's certain principles, you know, like restorative justice principles that I tap into um, that really, I think, make it quite effective. And it does help to circumvent the court system. Yeah. I and was, that's very helpful. Yeah. I was going to say that um, I, when I'm doing that kind of work with people, I encourage them to utilize this space and save a lot of time, money, energy, resources, bad, bad feelings to accomplish something that the court's going to tell you what to do and how to do it. Mm-hmm. You can do that yourself. You don't need mm-hmm. to pay an attorney all these thousands of dollars when we can work this out right here. Uh, exactly. Especially using what you said in terms of the intention. If your intention is to have your child functioning at an optimal level in a healthy manner, then you should want to work this out for their benefit. Mm-hmm. If it's truly about them and we're taking ego out of it. So I think that is a, a, a very uh, excellent way of, of looking at that and, and moving forward with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. OK. So um, last little bit here. I would like for you. I know being in New York and with where we are currently, that the big thing for it for really for the world is the COVID-19 and, and how people are kind of managing that. And I know we talked briefly before and and, um, most of the folks in the mental health that I'm talking to are experiencing an uptick in 
people wanting to get in and uh, deal with some of the issues they're facing as it relates to this. It's it's a very stressful time, uh, a time people are trying to uh, really figure life out on a number of different fronts. This sickness, their finances, um, being at the house with somebody you're not um, used to being with. We're seeing domestic violence go up. Um, there are just so many different reasons people are seeking out mental health. Uh, so I'd like to give you a chance to kind of speak to what it's like being really at ground, ground zero in New York um, with, with um, everything that's happening there, because this is really the hot point. Um, and then talk about some of the specific techniques that you are, are some of the things you see people talking about and then some of the specific techniques you're, use, you're utilizing to help them navigate this, this, this difficult time. So you're absolutely right. You know, this this does feel like ground zero. You know, it feels like another um, 9-11 crisis, Mm -hmm. Uh, but worse. You know, as it stands, uh, you know, it's very hard to keep up with the count. But last time I checked, you know, we had over um, 1,200 deaths, Mm. you know, in New York State and over 900 in New York City alone. Wow. Um, and so, and, you know, rising by the hundreds every day. Sure. So, you know, because we're such a densely populated city, um, and we also have a mass transit system that the bulk of our uh, residents rely on, we have a large um, homeless population. Mm-hmm. So there's certain things, you know, when you talk about social distancing, they're not always practical right. um, for, for individuals in these highly, um, you know, these dense, densely populated cities or cities that require for people to, um, to be on uh, New York City trains to get around. There's a number of people that are still um, considered essential workers. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a whole nother thing, because I think there's a lot of exploitation going on mm-hmm. uh, where people who are not really designated as essential by the government are still, you know, out here in these streets. Mm. Um, and, and they're threatened with, if they, if they don't show up to work, you know, they're going to lose their jobs or lose their benefits. Um, and so for people who are not privileged, uh, which oftentimes are those black and brown communities, um, they're disproportionately affected, mm-hmm. you know, by the stresses related to, to COVID-19. Right. So, um, you know, we have quite a number of um, issues that are unique um, for New York City. And I think the most important thing is to take a moment, at least from my perspective, um, to not have you know, just like these knee jerk reactions um, to, you know, either experiencing it as um, kind of a, a moment of, of, of panic or fear or like des- desperation in terms of like, well, you know, what am I going to do if I lose my job? Um, but to, to really take a moment and think about it as um, what has been called a Kairos moment um, in in Greek philosophy, but I know there are <laughs> African centered <laughs> principles. I'm I'm struggling to find one. If you if you have one, you let me know. Uh-huh, okay. um, but you know the Kairos moment 
you know, comes out of the whole Greek um, philosophy. And it's really looking at a moment where um, there's this, this catalyst, you know, this change, this paradigm shift where um, once you get to that point, after that moment, you know, things are never to be the same, you know, and our goal is to really think about, you know, and this is from my perspective, you know, on a spiritual level, mm-hmm. you know, what is God saying to me, you know, and how am I going to respond? You know, what what do I need to change about myself, you know, my family, my household, my community and my nation, you know, and, you know, it's not just about making it through the quarantine. And that's the piece that I think, you know, we have this knee-jerk reaction um, where we're just looking to survive. We're looking to not contract the virus. We're looking to keep our jobs. Um, and we're looking to um, ensure that we can make it while shut inside, you know, um, in the shelter-at-home, um, shelter-in-place order. But there's so much more than that, you know. And so my approach is really to look at um, a holistic and more culturally aligned strategy, not just for surviving, but thriving. And not just for right now, but but beyond, you know, like the, the next generation, um, the next um, iteration of of ourselves is resting on how we get through this crisis. Mm-hmm. And so to that end, you know, you know, again, I think a bit of it as a Sankofa season, you know, where we are um, a resilient people, you know, we're socially engineered um, to, to be able to um, improvise, to, to um, engage in the best of who we are and stand in solidarity with each other um, to um, use holistic strategies, um, the ancestral wisdom that we have to be able to get through um, these unprecedented times, you Mm -hmm. know, and, and it means looking at what are we going to change on the three levels of, of mind, body, and spirit, you Mm know? Um, Mm -hmm. So, I like to look at it um, from that standpoint and work with people um, and, and everybody's going to approach it or their entry point is going to be different. Right. So um, just the other day I was working with a 23 um, year old um, and, and her whole life is based on um, technology, you know, that she comes up in that era Um but she also has pre-existing um, mental health issues that have spiked, you know, like many other people with the with the Corona um, virus era. Okay. And so, you know, a lot of a lot of the difficulty is, you know, helping her to figure out um, how she's going to, like, literally make it through the quarantine. You know, and this is where now you get to talk about meeting people where they're at, you know, because she's not at a place where she can even think about, you know, using African-centered principles of, um, 
you know, survival and, you know, growing your own foods and, and incorporating like immunity boosting, um, herbs and, 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 um, high frequency foods into your diet, you know, or using meditation and prayer, um, and, and things that will assist you in reflecting on, you know, how you're going to respond from a um, spiritual standpoint. She's literally just trying to make it through the day without being able to um, go outside and hang out with her friends or, you know, go to the club or go to the weed spot or, you know, which are the things that she uses for Mm -hmm. self-medication. And she's home in an environment where she has a very toxic relationship with her family. Mm. So, um, so with that, you know, you start to think about, well, how do you at least grab a hold of what you can control? Okay. So you may not be able to control your movements in terms of going outside and, you know, socializing with your friends in a physical form, but you can control your ability to, um, to exercise in your, in your room, you know, as a way of, um, you know, I kind of think about the whole fight, flight, or freeze, Mm -hmm. um, stress Mm -hmm. response system, you know, and a lot of times, you know, we miss the opportunity to use that stress response system to do extraordinary things, you know? So when we're feeling anxious, you know, and we're starting to have those stress hormones, pumping around in our blood and we're starting to feel, um, you know, like we're getting ready to jump out of our skin, you know, we talked about for her, you know, doing basic things that allow her to use her body um, Mm. in that very moment. Um, So, so using movement to heal, you know, and in addition to being a psychologist, I'm also um, you know, a traditional African dancer and a former athlete. So, um, the body is a, is a tool, um, in a lot of the clinical work that I do. And I always try to figure out, you know, how can I link, um, movement into the healing process, Ah, you know? Mm -hmm. So this is, you know, this is the work, this is her entry point, you know, where she may not be able to, um, go down the spiritual path as yet, but just being able to um, teach her some basic, um, you know, movements that can, um, you know, relax her muscles, that can, um, you know, use rhythm, mm-hmm. right? Especially this is where we kind of bring in um, the cultural aspect. Um, there's a lot of uh, individuals that already have music that speaks to them, you know, and understanding the power of rhythm and the drum beat. Um, in in decreasing tension and so really figuring out how do we use these these um, cultural assets um, in the service of of anxiety reduction mm-hmm. so these are some of the things that you know I've been doing in the last um, two to three weeks to really find out you know how people can, be more holistic, um, and how to merge the African centered, um, philosophy with, um, you know, the, the COVID recovery, you know, and, and stress reduction. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Good stuff. Good stuff. Man, we we um we have to have a part two of this because I'm interested in the whole combining dance with psychology. That that in and of itself could be a whole <laughs> whole conversation. <laughs> so we're gonna have to pick pick that up later and chop that part up as well. Um, I would love to. I yeah. would love to. Yeah. Okay. Well, I really appreciate your time. This has been quite enriching. Uh, we touched on a bunch of good stuff here. Um, why don't you say a little bit about how people can get in contact with you um, if they're in the Brooklyn, New York area, or any area, if they just want to touch base with you? And Sure. So um, people can reach me on my website at www.drjamila.com, which is D-R-J-A-M-I-L-A. Uh, there's a contact form embedded in my website where you can um, submit questions or you can submit um, what your interest is in terms of uh, getting started with therapy or um, consultation or any speaking engagements. Um, you can reach me on social media at uh, Dr. Jamila One, which is D-O-C-T-O-R-J-A-M-I-L-A One. Uh, that's on um, Instagram, Twitter, and uh, Facebook. And uh, you can email me at info at drjamila.com. And uh, I, I really am looking to do a lot more um, kind of uh, public awareness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, I'm working to beef up <laughs> some of my uh, social media presence um, because this is where a lot of people are retreating to now. So um, that's my goal. Um, I haven't typically um, really exercised those platforms as a way of of, um, sharing my work, but that's my commitment, uh, especially in this season of uh, Mm COVID-19. Okay. Well, Thank you so much for your time and for your information and for this fruitful discussion. Um, we look forward to connecting with you moving forward down the line. Um, for all of our listeners, we thank you and appreciate you so much for making this possible. And we hope that you are being inspired, encouraged to engage in processes that are transforming your lives. Because that's what it's about, evolution and transformation. Um, as we critically think about this whole process. You want to say one more thing here? I just want to say I shame. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Thank you for the platform. (laughs) Yes, no problem. We enjoy it. All right, till next time, we'll see you. Take it easy. Be safe out there. In closing, I want to remind you to always be a critical thinker as it relates to your mental health and well-being. We always want to inspire you to consciously question your choices to ensure that you are doing those things that bring you happiness and fulfillment. Please don't forget to subscribe to our channel and share the information with others who might benefit. Connect with us on Twitter at HeartMindHealer and visit our Facebook and Instagram pages at Alashe Center, A-L-A-S-E Center. Our website is Alashe.net. A-L-A-S-E dot net. And feel free to contact us for any consultations or questions you might have. Things that I might be missing Running too fast to stop to listen
Gotta step out on faith I gotta show my faith 